Welcome to the Work Matters Podcast. In each episode, talking with thought leaders and executives, PurposeWorks founder Thomas Bertels explores what it takes to make work more productive, valuable, impactful, and meaningful. Let's begin the conversation. Welcome to the Work Matters Podcast. My guest today is Laurent Schwein. Um, Laurent has a 30-year career in human relations and is currently responsible for the people function at Mazar, which is a leading French professional service company. It was actually a global footprint. Right? I think it has some 40,000 people in some 90 countries. First of all, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Thomas. So you spent a vast majority of your professional life in the human relations space, and, and one topic that we want to talk today about is knowledge worker productivity. As a leader of the people function at Mazars, how do you think about knowledge worker productivity? The, the first time I, I really encountered the, the term, per se, was because I was pretty much uh, interested in Peter Drucker's job and work. Uh, job because he was, for me, not exactly an academic. He was rather a social philosopher, if you want. Uh, and I was a very young student at the time, so 1983 or 84, and I, I read this book called uh, Management Challenges for the 20th Century, something like this. Um, so that was funny because, of course, it was uh, really uh, ahead of its time in many ways, like Peter has always been. And um, he wrote that book in which he was explaining the following. He said... The world globally has known three uh, eras. Era number one uh, is what Adam Smith called the homo economicus, meaning that um, the very nature of a worker is uh, its individuality, their individuality. It means that they, they, they are actually the labor force themselves. And by the way, their life was fragile as professionals because it was depending on what their boss would write uh, about the work they did for them, and they would be uh, totally at the mercy of uh, of the boss and and the willingness of someone to employ them or not. So, uh, social protection, of course, came along, but I would say that was really a world where, until the Second World War, the very nature of economy and employment was this homo economicus. Drucker noticed something that very few people actually noticed before him, which is that before the Second World War and after the Second World War, and namely from 1950, the number of organizations in the world was multiplied by 3 million. Can you imagine? So it means that suddenly, after the Second World War, we saw appearing a lot of organizations. By the way, when I say organization, I'm not talking about private firms. I'm talking about Public services, for instance. You see, the French social security, so many people are talking about, was invented in '46, And this led to what he called the industrial man, instead of the economic, the economic man, if you want. Uh, meaning that we were all employees of organizations in jobs, by the way, that did not exist before. Uh, you see, my job as an HR leader, of course, there used to be some personal manager or uh, hirers or supervisors before the war, but you wouldn't find a title like chief HR officer or chief marketing officer or even a controller in finance, you see? So all of these jobs that has, uh, really have been the bread and butter of what we know today, and we tend to consider it a given and uh, having been existing since the Industrial Revolution, it's not the case. It's only 60 years. Uh, and this is really something that is important to understand. We moved from this economic man, mostly workers, to, um, let's say, clerks, office employees. And the beauty is that if you look in these 60 years, the productivity of these people was multiplied by 50. So it means that all these management theories, uh, all these business schools that started to, to, to really rise uh, at that moment, they did their job. And all this management uh, by objectives and all these things, actually, they were really performing. Except that Drucker was saying, can you imagine, end of the 80s, beginning of the 90s, he said, well, you know, by the end of this century, there will be a technological revolution that will totally change the world. And then 
we will be done with this period, this incredibly rich period of the organizational or the industrial man, if you want. And with the industrial man is associated this idea of modern management, as we called it at the time. And he said, no, we are going to switch to people that are no longer to see work like this, not working in big companies, not <coughs> working in the different floors of an organization, but actually working with their brains. And the problem is that these people, you won't manage them with the former standards that have been so successful over a period of 60 years. And that's how we started to, to forge, to coin the concept of knowledge workers. And uh, meaning that, of course, you, you, your main uh, labor force comes from your brain. So Drucker also famously said that knowledge workers need autonomy. That obviously creates like a little bit like a conflict, right? What you described, that evolution, right, of the working man and MBA management by objectives and, and hierarchical control and, and all these great mechanisms that we created to organize like more administrative type work is not particularly well suited to the management of knowledge worker who, if they want to walk out the door and, and there goes your intellectual capital, right? So, so how do you operationalize that? How do you actually manage those, those kind of people that, as per Drucker, need the autonomy? Independence and autonomy are two different things. I can give you a lot of independence, Thomas, and then because you want to perform, because the motivation is not in what I'm telling you or asking you, it is in your own willingness to be performing or not, you will decide to be autonomous because I give you independence. But you see, this is, this is a, a very important difference because if you have people in front of you who would tell you, okay, give me the independence, but I, I'm not going to be self-motivated, which is another word for autonomous, then you will have a problem. So the big question is to raise equally, on the one hand, uh, your aspiration to autonomy uh, and independence. And so that's what actually, uh, it's a little bit conceptual, but actually have plenty of very concrete examples of this, where you can work like this, by instead of trying to control everything, like this kind of discussion many people have at the moment, by how many works should we, how many days should we work remotely? I mean, it's totally irrelevant. Who cares? But it's occupying a lot of days uh, of an HR leader. Actually, it doesn't make sense. That's not the real question. The real question is, are we ready to get the best even if they tell you, I'm going to work with you and give my best, but it's not going to be 100% of my time for you. Are we ready for this? Not that easy. Because this can also refer to some blockage we can have, uh, moral blockage, which can be also, uh, uh, you know, uh, human things. Uh, Don Juanism has never been easily accepted in our societies. So why would we accept it easily for jobs, for works? But that's what it is, Don Juanism, you said. You know, you go from one thing to the other. So, so people need autonomy, right? They need independence, right? So that they can take uh, accountability and responsibility. But, but obviously, they got to be, you know, some. Well, independence can only go so far. Ultimately, right? The organization has to work together. So, how do you create like the alignment and the coordination that's necessary? The first thing is you can't demand it. You need to create it. You need to ignite it. You need to generate it. So what matters is professional friendship. And to answer your question very concretely, it is not about writing another page on a website, proclaiming values that will be totally uh, denunciated the day after because you're behaving differently because things are more complex. But the real question is, are we professionally friends and are we going to fight for this? And how do you create that? At Mazar, it's very simple. We say we offer you two things. So the employer promise, you can really go down to two simple things. One, employability for life. I'm not in the retention game. That's not my business. So I am an HR leader who is totally, I would say, you can't imagine how I am disconnected from this question of retention of people. The best way to retain talent is to say, you know, the door is open, you only stay if you want. Not because we would have put some artifacts that would have you stay. The second thing we offer is friendship for life. Friends for life. 
And that's what we say in our recruitment campaigns everywhere. We sell two things. Come to us not to work, but to learn. And second, you will make friends for life. What do I mean by this? It's about creating professional friendship. And professional friendship is not about socializing. It's not about having a coffee together. It is about worrying for your career, Thomas. If I would be your professional friend if at one point in time I say, yes, I help you. Uh, I will give you a hand. I will back you. I will recommend you. I will be there when things are not turning right. I will coach you, for instance. And so you need to create this culture of friendship. I use the term coaching, for instance, at Mazar. I am spending my time now to spread a culture of coaching everywhere in the organization. I want, like Marshall Goldsmith used to say, I want everyone to have a coach and everyone to be a coach. And you, you know what? You couldn't care less about coaching. I don't like the word, by the way. But what, I couldn't use the word friends, but I want them to have a professional friend. You see? And uh, friends, by the way, not only one, but a lot of them. And again, this is not about being social, being nice or whatever, knowing the nephew or whatever. No, it's about helping me in my professional growth. That's what it means for me. So what are the implications for people managers in, in that context? There are people at Mazars that are responsible right, for these 25, 26, 27 year old professionals what's their job like how do they how do they operate well first you're mentioning something that is very important uh, an old guy at maza is 29 if the average age is 28 and as we hire them let's say when they are 22 23 it means that the full spectrum of management is including in one generation so by definition uh, someone who would like to play it by ethos saying i'm the boss in front of them, they would have people telling this. <laughs> Let me stay polite and not use the word, but they would use an, an F word to say, who are you to tell me this? And by the way, if I'm not happy, I'm leaving. You know? You're spending so much money to try to attract me with people like you, I'm going to leave immediately. And by the way, this person would have a problem because this is not the values we're preaching for. So first thing, uh, we couldn't play too much this kind of hierarchical uh, relationship between people because uh, this is not serious. People wouldn't take it serious in a certain way, you see? The second thing is <clears throat> we need to pay attention to one thing. How do you behave as an employer? Uh, if you take the, the COVID-19, uh, that was funny because out of my 92 countries, um, the only country where I had in the first week uh, when the COVID was, I would say, declared a global uh, disease, the only country where that, who first started to fire people was the US. 10% of the total staff was gone. In the rest of the countries at Mazar, they say, no, number one, we protect our people. In the US environment, that was not a problem because uh, that was the name of the game. And by the way, uh, when the situation went better, immediately they, they get rehired and you have a lower unemployment that we have in France. So there is no criticism in what I'm saying here. But there is a consequence. There is no critique, but there is a consequence. The consequence is that now you're talking about the big quit. And the big quit also results from this. It results from the fact that people say, listen, it's a total liberal system. It's a wild, wild west. I mean, when they had the, 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 the opportunity, um, they took me off. You know, there is this uh, famous uh, TV show called The Blacklist. And at one point, the, 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 the character there, um, what's his name? Ray Reddington, Raymond Reddington, something like this. He takes a little uh, thief. He has a little thief in, a, in his hand, and the guy tried to kill him. And, of course, he did not uh, succeed. And Reddington, of course, is not going to kill the guy in return. But he says, tell me, how stupid are you? Why did you do that? And the guy says, because my employer asked me to do and Reddington says a sentence, I'm sorry, because it is not very precise, but it is exactly the idea. He says, there is no such thing as being loyal to an employer. Because the day they will be given the opportunity, they will not be loyal to you. The only things that make the world go round are loyalty to individuals and relationships. You know what? It's a TV show, but I can tell you, this is really the bread and butter of what human relations should be. And this is the case for us. It means that today 
probably the employer image of Maza in the US, we need to go on building. We have a wonderful HR leader, by the way, uh, Carrie Fleming. She has arrived in between and she's doing that job. But you know, you need also sometimes to know what are the consequences of decisions. In a very fluid system like in the US, probably it made sense, but today you have this big quit, this great resignation. We have it less in other parts of the world, but one of the reasons is this as well. We said, listen, we are not going to, to sack you. We're not going to fire you. By the way, it doesn't mean, and stay with us, you know, even if you don't like it afterwards. No, on the top of that, we say, and you know what, if tomorrow you're not happy with us, you don't owe us anything. Just make it as a free judgment, a free choice. Because if you're a talent, again, the only thing that will retain you is the door is open and stay only if you want, not for all the bad reasons, you see. This is known. This is part of our culture. Uh, it's a little bit counterintuitive in many ways. It is against what has been said during 60 years. It is probably against what I have practiced myself for 25 years in my career or 20 years in my career. But, you know, uh, with time going, I don't believe that the future is in this big thing in belonging to a firm, in, in having this uh, uh, totally aligned vision and so on. I like what Fred Kaufman says in this. He says... Your job is to align individual interest with a collective interest. It doesn't mean that just because a firm is a firm or it is a kind of union, everybody should, you know, be in communion with this. It's not a religion. You need every day to motivate people. You need every day to make them believe in the thing for good reasons, not for this kind of mystic, uh, mystical reasons that don't make sense. When we talked earlier, you were talking about the creative class, that as a leader, you got to understand where in the organization is the creative class. Um, tell us a little bit more about like, that, that framework. First of all, uh, first things first, it is not my concept. Uh, probably in the US, you're more familiar than we are in Europe with a, a wonderful uh, thinker called Richard Florida. And as his name indicates, he comes from New Jersey, more precisely from New York. And it's uh, from, from New York is that he said to me, how can I uh, reflect on how my little city, my little town could be attractive to anyone? Because next to this, you have New York, you have big cities. So what is the future of New York? I mean, the, the, it's to become a cemetery, to become a dormitory uh, uh, city or things like this. So he started to think like this and he did his PhD on how to develop impoverished um, districts or cities. And his answer was, you need to attract in these districts a category of people called the creative class. So actors, architects, but you know, not the established one, the future ones, those who are studying this, for instance, or are at the beginning of their career. So they don't have the means to live in the uh, upper side and the, the, the nice, the, the, the nice uh, different uh, uh, super districts in a nice city, but they need to go to places that are cheaper. But because they come there, they start attracting a second category of people. You see, the first one are what Richard Florida called um, the professional creative. So it means their profession is to be creative. They, they, and we come back to what Drucker said with the, the knowledge workers. First category is the people that are actually making money out of their creativity directly. Second category, those who like these people and would like to be like them are those actually who are professionals, not um, with the, the main focus on creativity, but if they are creative professionals, then they are better professionals than others. So it means that creativity is a plus for them. And so you see the two categories, the professional creatives and the creative professionals. All of this, by the way, according to Florida, uh, it is more or less 25% of the, of the population. But these people, the first attract the second. What Florida said is simple to understand. He said, well, you need to attract these people if you want to popularize or to kind of enhance actually your cities and attract the talents of tomorrow. You understand that this will not be made by the rich people in the rich districts. They are not creating value, they are consuming values. But those who are really creating values are these people, the poor future stars that are actually 
populating and popularizing districts that are become going to become hype while they were considered totally uh, things you should have forgotten. Look, uh, first of all, Steve Jobs read the, the PhD and he said, that's maybe what I should do. I should do this at Apple. Because instead of having Apple being a place, instead of creating products for people who want to be a more and more limited club of people, I sh actually, I should do the contrary. I should go for creating products for this creative class. And that's how all the things developed with the iPod, iPad, and so on. Good thing is, Richard Florida never uh, thought uh, to firms and companies. He was thinking uh, urban studies. He was thinking cities, nations. And he started to think of it. And uh, myself, I was facing this at that moment. And I said, well, why shouldn't we apply this concept to the firm? Because this is exactly the kind of problems we have in organizations. What are organizations about? It's about securing a succession of executives that would share the same codes, values, and so on. Just like if you would take people coming from the, um, the richest uh, suburbs in a city and only having people coming from these suburbs replacing the others. And so you, you, you can see immediately that is, there is some insanity in this. But that's what we're doing. What is a hypo? A hypo is someone who can understand faster than others the cause of the former generation. And because of this, they will be absolutely loathed by the former generation, saying, ah, that's exactly my successor. He's got it before anyone else. And so you go on reproducing the same. If you ask yourself not who are my hypos, but who is my creative class in an organization, you will have a different answer. Not the same people, by the way. So for this also, you need to understand and Florida said it, first of all, what is the best environment for this uh, creative class? Florida said you need three things, tech, talent, and tolerance. If you don't have these three elements in the environment, the creative class won't stay and won't grow. So you see, talent, tech, tolerance. Uh, by the way, by tolerance, he was referring to the fact that many of these people are gay or lesbians or whatever, LGBT. And for this, by the way, he was attacked. And the, the funny thing with Florida, with the money he made with his book, uh, 10 years later than his PhD, the, the book is called The Rise of the Creative Class, um, he invested uh, part of the money in founding, in funding the, his enemies, his opponents, saying, listen, I need you to, to, to improve my ideas, so please go on criticizing me and I pay you for this. <laughs> you see, so that's the thing. Three things, talent, tech, tolerance. If you have one of these missing, you can't grow your creative class. But then now, if you go to uh, what are the criteria to really identify these people, they have three characteristics that others don't have. Number one, they are uh, what we call uh, snowball learners. Give them two ideas, they will make five of it. Uh, second, they are what we call creative implementers. They are not really creative in design, they are creative in implementing ideas. Uh, which, by the way, in companies is more important. To, you know, it's not about being really full of new ideas, but to, to put them in motion and embark people in there. And the third one, they are resource investigators. So it means that they are connected to the outside. So they are insiders, outsiders. Uh, we have a, a word in French for this called marginal second, intersecting marginal. Uh, in sociology, we, we, we speak about people who are, you know, of different worlds. And so they can be the connectors, by the way. Probably today there are some Ukrainian Russians or Russian Ukrainians that can talk to the two parties because at one point in time you need these people if you want to get out of the thing. So you see, if you try to identify these people, it's totally different from the people you would have if you identify the hypos. But then the question becomes also, and this is an important thing, where are they? And they are not just uh, the brilliant managers. Some of them are... Uh, are the, the leaders, are the executive. It's not because you're an executive that you cannot be a creative person. But if you're an executive, you're not longer considered as an IPO. You see that that's the kind of thing. So no, you might also generate creativity by being uh, like me, not exactly the youngest guy in the room. But some of them also are nowhere in the organization. You can't see them. And worst, some of them are even outside your firm. And this goes back to 
another concept of Charles Handy, uh, the Irish uh, social philosopher like uh, like Peter was. And Charles, uh, in 1992 or three, uh, wrote a first book called uh, The Age of Paradox, in which he described what he called a shamrock organization. You take a clover with four leaves, like in Ireland, and you say, well, what is a firm? A firm is not only the core staff. It's not only those who are uh, monthly paid with a permanent job, you know? No. In a firm, for instance, the person at the reception is probably not employed by you. Is a, is a contractor, is it's a, someone working outside. But you know what? They've been there for 20 years. They know everyone. Most probably, they, they have a better connection to everyone in the firm than the HR leader. So, you see, there are people, uh, according to Charles, that are also contributing to the firm without being on the full uh, paid staff. And this is what he described in the Shamrock organization, freelancers, consultants, contractors, whatever. But in the next book, he said, if firms can organize like this, why would individuals not organize like this? You see, we come back to this idea of independency of knowledge workers, leading to another concept that is very famous now, the slashes. Meaning that if firms can have different forms of employees, me as an employee, I can have maybe different employers. And so that's the way, you see, you can connect the things. And if you look, uh, the creative class, most of the time, they have this tendency to look around, to, to not to be focusing only on one thing, not to be what we call monochronic, but to be polychronic, doing many things at the same time. And this is really, really the, the, the new world. By the way, if your employer promises on this, you attract the young people much better than if you just promise to adhere to a firm's adventure that at the end of the day might kill you uh, without knowing you why you, you spend so much time at work. It kind of like flips like the, the whole traditional management model upside down, right? Because instead of it's all about the company, join us for this mighty cause. Yes, we have a cause, right? But let's talk about you and what we can do, right? To develop you, right? To make you a better better version of yourself. And, and you see, it's, it's a two-way street. It's let's talk about you, how you can develop yourself, but let's give you a chance to develop others. Because if you don't have this second part of the deal, uh, it's it's uh, it's going nowhere. What I mean by this is uh, you will burn people one after the other and you will never receive something that would be of interest, which is exactly building this friendship. So it has to be a, a two-way street. You see, it cannot be just, let me try to understand what I can do for you. And that goes, I think, also, you called it uh, gratuity. Tell us about that. Tell us about that concept. It's something I, I owe to a very good friend of mine who used to be my boss, by the way, uh, but an inspirator and the former CEO of Kempinski. He said, you know, leadership ultimately for great, great leaders is just about emotional tipping. And this was uh, very interesting uh, because I, I, I never really encountered the idea before. And so I said, go a bit further. And he explained to me that, of course, you can speak about money tipping or financial tipping. But when you practice leadership, it's exactly the same gesture. It's not obvious. You, 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 you need to learn how to tip. You see? Just like in the, in the same way, when you're a leader, you need to learn how to tip emotionally. Because naturally, you won't do it. And what he says is that most of what makes motivation at work are not the big things, but are the little things that create this professional friendship, I'm coming back to this, that is this emotional tipping. And you see this idea I never saw before. I have been working in this world of leadership for so many years. I've, I've written so many articles on management gurus and so on. This I never saw before. The question on how to read leadership under tipping. And if you go a step further, what is tipping? It's gratuity. That's the, the other name given, by the way. It's a synonymous, synonym of, of tipping. Gratuity, except that in French, gratuity means uh, for free. And interestingly enough, this is exactly what is the idea behind. If you want to be a great leader, you need to act for free, not always to be productive in your leadership, to know what will be the return on time invested, the return on uh, affection, the return on... And you see all of this at the end of the day leads to this idea that the first quality of someone is to give without expecting a return. 
And the great leaders are always those where you would say, but he was not obliged to do this, but he did it. You see? And hence the value of it, because uh, he was not obliged or she was not obliged. So you see, this is the, this importance of tipping in leadership that makes a difference. This is something which is a very little thing, but that really can change your leadership attitude, your leadership impact. And at the end of the day, the friendship that you are uh, kind of spreading around you, which again, at the end of the, of the story, makes that people will remind this of you and uh, will also feel that all of this was worth living it. I think that's really important. I think that ties to this notion of right, self-esteem, right? It's like, how do we actually build positive relationships in an organization and, and make people come out stronger on the other end, right? And, and one reflection is, I, I've, I've, you know, I'm not sure how many meetings I've set through, right? Where actually, it's like the team came out smaller than they walked in, right? It's like they presented, they thought they had a great idea, and the walk cut off at the knees. For one reason, and I urge you to, to invite uh, Marshall Goldsmith to speak here as well, because Marshall explained it very well. Marshall, um, he said one, one thing that really inspired me on my lifelong, which is I just work with very successful people. I, I'm not this kind of coach, you know, taking care of people who are in stress and not working well. No, all of the people I'm taking care of are actually very successful people. But even successful people sometimes they have derailers, they have drawbacks. One of the most famous ones, as uh, Marshall is used to saying, is the need to win at any rate. Why are they so successful? Because they are always winning. He gives a good example of this. He says, you come back home and your life partner says, you know, I had a hard day. And you say, you had a hard day? Let me tell you what a hard day is. And actually, this day is not over, if you think, because then, of course, you see, even in misery, you want to win. So basically, um, Highly successful people can have some derailers uh, th that are dangerous attitudes, even if many people would consider them uh, part of their, their, their beauty and their, their qualities. And you see, why not? They, they, they are not, actually. One of the things that is very important there is exactly this. And most of the leaders, they have an inability to do one thing, is to keep the little flame burning. In each and every one, there is a little flame. And what you describe when you, you, you say, I've been in so many webinars where people went out of the webinars with this little flame shut down, actually, um, is, is a reality. And you see, all the thing is, when you have someone in front of you, when you have a group of people in front of you, the only objective you have is to keep the little flame burning. Uh, if I have someone on my team who comes to me and says, oh, I have an idea. Oh, you have an idea. Okay, what is it? We could do this. I say, yeah, that's really great. And you know what? If we would do this on top, that would even be better. You see, I want to be the smartest in the room. I think I am adding value. What have I done? I have added 5% of value and I have withdrawn something like 80% of the motivation of the people to do so. So you see, the problem is at the end that we don't need to be the smartest in the room. And second, uh, many times uh, some people ask me, what is your job as an HR leader? And my simple definition is to increase the self-esteem of people in front of me. And I keep on thinking like this. If what I'm doing, what I'm saying, is decreasing the self-esteem of people, then I, I, sh I should do something else, probably. I think that's a really interesting framework to look through. Whatever option I have to take next, what's the option that preserves the most of the energy that, that is in the organization, because that's probably the most precious thing. I mean, if I look at the, the organizations that I work with there, like every year, there are like thousands of ideas that are being thrown out, but like maybe three of them get implemented, maybe one of them gets implemented well. And a lot of them just die because there's not enough energy in the organization to do it because all the decision-making gets pulled to the top, right? Everybody can in the hierarchy can sit there in judgment and say, to your point, well, have you thought about this? What about this? And, and, and suck, suck the life out of it. Passing judgment is the worst thing that can exist in life, not in organization in general, you know, because it's a natural reflex we have. We judge. Look, I work in the professional service industry, which means that we hire people for their professional skepticism. We ask them not to believe in anyone and in anything. 
you know the problem becomes when they become managers. Because they can be wonderful professionals for this, but when they become managers, they don't even believe in their teams because they are suspicious. They have been, they've been trained for this. So you see, at the end of the day, uh, my job is a little bit schizophrenic because I need to, to balance these two things. We need to stay very skeptical uh, for, for professional reasons. And we can see today so many scandals that are happening. Uh, fortunately enough, we're probably not big enough to, 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 to suffer the uh, same scandals as, as our big friends. But, you know, um, d- this is a, a critical moment for the profession. But at the same time, how do you turn superb uh, skeptical professionals into leaders for good? And you know why I'm saying this? Because my job is about 95% of the people who are f- fresh grads. So my social responsibility, my CSR, my ESG, whatever, we have a specific dimension that we need to serve, which is we are the first employers of fresh grads that are going to stay less than 10 years with us. And what do they do afterwards? They don't stay and go for the competition. They start populating across all industries in managerial roles. So it means that if we expose them to stupid management models, when they are with us, then they will contaminate everyone, all industries, everywhere. So you see, our responsibility is twofold. First, make them exceptional professionals, but at the same time, prepare them to be great managers, modern managers, uh, for the years that they are not going to spend with us. So what do you put in people's toolbox? What do you equip them with? If you had to pick like one or two things that you try to embed, um, what would that be? Yeah, there are many things. Uh, but let's say that if we want to focus on one thing, for instance, it's this uh, coaching uh, culture. I would say um, I couldn't care less about having them become uh, wonderful uh, uh, managers and things like this. Let's say if at least we make them good coaches, it will help them not only with their teams, their future teams, but also in their life, with their clients, with everyone around. You know, if we teach them nonviolent communication, for instance, instead of uh, teaching them uh, super competition and these kind of things, then we would definitely hit the nail on the head. I like very much what Satya Nadella has done uh, at Microsoft because, you know, 20 years of Microsoft, for 20 years, when Bill Gates said to Steve Ballmer, listen, I'm not interested in, uh, I'm a founder. And, you know, like Reid Hoffman said, the difference between a founder and an entrepreneur is that a founder... An entrepreneur wants to build an organization and to grow an organization. A founder, they want to solve an intellectual problem, which is totally different. And if you look, when uh, Gates gave up the CEO job at Microsoft, he went for his friend at Harvard and said, Steve, it's for you because you like it. And so Ballmer went for it and he structured it in such a way. Everybody sees, you know, the guy playing the monkey dance and so on, but... Look at what he's done. It's interesting. He has structured standards of management over 20 years that were very powerful uh, with three things. He said a good leader at Microsoft is smart, work hard, get things done. And not only two of the three, not only one of the three, the three of them together. Otherwise, no goodness. And this became the mantra at Microsoft. Except that when Nardella came in, he said, well, we, we did wonderful profits. We were so efficient in doing this. But probably you read also an article from Roger Martin saying yeah, there is a high cost of efficiency because what matters is resilience, not efficiency. And by the way, if, <laughs> resilience is never taught in any MBA in the world why uh, 100% of the courses are about being more efficient. <laughs> the thing is that Microsoft was efficient in producing results, but not inventing the future. And so they started to miss some important rendezvous and they... And Nardella said, well, what is the reason for this? And he said, well, it's the managerial culture. Because we tend to promote internal competition, for instance. We go for this internal fight. We go for, with this smart work hard, get things done. We reproduce the system. So he read uh, the, the work of Carol Dweck in, uh, in Stanford. Uh, you know, she, she, she made a difference between a fixed mindset and growth mindset. And she said, well, uh, if you believe that successful people, uh, they have a gift, they've been given this success in a certain way, like many successful people think, by the way, then you're in a fixed mindset. Uh, Growth mindset are more about people who are used to failing, 
But because they are used to failing, actually what they do, they learn how to rebound from this. Uh, let me give you a positive example. Mandela. Uh, you know, everybody's now quoting his famous sentence saying, uh, I never lose, I either win or learn. That's the, the mindset. And so Mandela said, we need to move to this. And listen to what he said. He says, well, we need to go for three others than uh, smart, work out, get things done. And he moved to model, coach, care. Model in the sense of role model. It means that if you preach for work-life balance, but yourself, you're a model of non-work-life balance. I mean, the, the, the exemplarity is not there. The, 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 it doesn't mean anything. You see, coach, don't need to explain. I've been explaining this extensively. And care, which is uh, showing true care to people. And that's, again, the emotional tipping. You see, that's where we, we go. I think I think it's super fascinating, right? Because I I 100% agree with you, but I also see every day organizations that say all these wonderful things: servant leadership, unbossing, right? Name it whatever you do, right? But then the reality of it is, we're cutting 10% of this. We got to make the quarterly earnings. Senior leaders are also under a lot of pressures and have a lot of different stakeholders to face, not just right the ones like further down in the organization. But I'm I'm really curious what. Satya has done it at Microsoft, whether that's like the, a little bit the luxury of the, of the very successful organization. You're absolutely right, huh, Thomas. I agree with you. And Microsoft was not about to bankrupt. But Best Buy was. If you take an example, that is not an example of a highly successful company that was going nowhere, totally south. And when Uber uh, took over, actually, he did more or less the same, not with the same references to Carol Dweck and so on, but he went for this Marshall experience, Marshall Goldsmith experience, and he started to become a proselyte of this uh, coaching attitude and turning people into coach. What you ask for a question leads to an ethical positioning of the leader. It means you're absolutely right. You know, uh, if there is one interesting question you can ask to any leader, is the following. Is your organization... Developing, destroying, or having absolutely no influence on the self-esteem of the people inside. And you know what? The same organization normally should answer the three of them, sir. Because, of course, it's never a hundred percent. I can tell you at Mazar, I know situations where Mazar is developing the self-esteem of people, having no impact, and sometimes destroying. But then the question becomes, okay, what do you do when you observe and you see and you spot that you're destroying the self-esteem of people? Do you correct it or do you just close the eyes and look somewhere else? And this is where leadership is an individual adventure. It is an individual statement you make to know whether you're going to accept it or not. And that's where I come back to what I said. I'm leaving this at the moment, for instance, and sometimes it's a difficult decision. Because even, for instance, when you have to deal with an asshole, a jerk in an organization, you know this 100-person jerk-free organization, okay, how do you deal with this once you've spotted the guy? Do you behave yourself like a jerk with the jerk? It's complex. You know, because Im immediately you would summon the guy and kill the guy. Boom. Doesn't make sense. A very good example I'd like to give on this. I'm not going to take a Mazar example in this, but I have plenty of them. Uh, it's um, Jeff Winner, the former CEO of LinkedIn. Uh, Jeff wants, uh, and I'm sorry because uh, it has been a long time since we we met, and I, I, but he told me that story, and I, I, I don't remember all the details, but uh, I, I had the same story told, on the other hand, by the guy who lived it. Um, a French guy was the most performing salesperson in Europe. And there was the position of VP Europe to be attributed. Um, and once this French guy received a little note by Jeff saying, can you pass by and come to California? And I paid a ticket, take a, a first class ticket and come and see me. And the guy, of course, that was for him his nomination ticket, so he said go, took his flight, landed in, uh, uh, in San Francisco, and, uh, uh, and then he went, to, uh, he went to the headquarters at the time in, uh, near Google. And then uh, Jeff welcomed him and said, you know, Pierre, uh, I don't know whether it was Pierre or not, but who cares? It's uh, not the right name. 
And Jeff said, Pierre, I'm not going to appoint you to the position. You're the best performer, but at the same time, you're killing the teams. So I'm going to name, I don't remember the name of the guy, an Italian guy, so let's say Gianni, for instance. And the Gianni in question was one of the poorest performers in the organization. And of course, Pierre said, but Jeff, Gianni, you know, he doesn't. Yes, but everybody likes him. And what I need at the moment is also someone that can do this. But if I add you come here in first class, it's not to tell you that it's the end of the adventure. It's to make sure that you would understand when I'm doing this, what I mean, what I need from you. And actually, so if you want, what you can do to go in that direction. And you see, many people would have treated Pierre by saying, listen, Pierre, you're simply a jerk. First of all, many people would have promoted Pierre saying, we close the eye on the fact you're a jerk. Who cares? You're providing me with the money. The rest doesn't matter. Other people would have summoned Pierre and let him know that he's a jerk. And for this, he wouldn't be promoted. But what Jeff did was to say, listen, I need to apply to myself. And probably there was some Fred Kaufman's advice behind it. And he said, well, listen, if I behave myself like what I'm going to reproach the guy now, and it, it, it doesn't make sense. You see, so the, this story of model is there too. So that's the complexity of the thing. Every day in our job, we're facing these kind of situations. So that's why it has to be a personal statement. That's why I was saying it's an ethical point. It's not an organizational uh, decision, you see. No, and, and, and I love what you're saying because it, it also helps a lot because right, the world is not just, right? senior the CEO and, and the workers at the bottom. What I find really interesting is like all the people that live in the middle, middle management, their degrees of freedom to do anything. Because on the one side, you got the expectations from the people further down that actually do the work. And then you also have the expectations from senior leadership to drive results. And I find it really interesting that that group actually probably gets the most pressure in an organization. The pressure builds up at the bottom. And, and, and these situations that you describe where you run into a jerk, right, that oftentimes happens, I think, at, at the peer level, right, where you say, well, I'm trying to have a positive impact here and drive this project. And, and this jerk and this functional fiefdom, right, doesn't want to play. And so the reality is, right, you have to work through those situations. And, and I like your point about so that that's really ultimately where you take a leadership role, that you have to make a decision how you're going to approach that topic. You know, some people say you have to be consistent, but consistent doesn't mean anything. It means what? It means being uh, in 70% maybe of the cases consistent with what you are. But, you know, no one is really 100% consistent. Uh, this I have never met. met. Uh, it, it's, uh, so it's more a question of being human. Uh, I mean, in France, we, we had Albert Camus, a very famous author, uh, who explained this, you know, we, we remain human people. And so it means also we... Consistency is a question of relative level. It's not something that uh, is this 100-person thing that uh, only people that believe what they tell themselves are like this. By the way, they, they, they become mad very rapidly. So, you know, it's, it's very interesting. Maybe, uh, let me uh, uh, finish with this anecdote for you, uh, Thomas. Uh, you know, we have a French designer called Philippe Stark, but he's now known worldwide. He's done this yacht for Steve Jobs and things like this. And Philippe once was asked to go and uh, try to save a company called Baccarat. Uh, they were famous uh, crystal uh, and glass uh, manufacturers. And of course, all what they do is like jewels. It's, it's really nice. But the company was uh, heading to bankruptcy. And um, the, the, the CEO of Baccarat once asked Philippe to try to help, and he said, let me just give me two days in the factory. And so he went to Lorraine, so the eastern part of France, arrived in the morning, and he said, I just want to talk to workers. I don't want to talk to the direction, to the, to, to the leadership of the thing. I want to talk to workers. And then he started to discuss with workers, and he said, what is the most beautiful crystal in the world? And they say black crystal. He said, ah, okay, are you doing this? And they said, no, no longer. Because it's very hard to work and there is always a default somewhere. And so uh, we, when we did it, the controllers 
they always rejected the product. And so the cost of production of one perfect piece was so high that nobody would buy it. A glass for 6,000, you know, doesn't make sense. Then he spent time with the controllers. And they all told, uh, start the same story. They said, no, yeah, you know, there is always a default. And so start said, do you still have some pieces of that with a default? So anyway, we can find. So they went and they found the <coughs> glass. And when you know Stark is really someone who is so meticulous, he's always, you know, looking at details in a way. And he said, myself being so meticulous, when I observed what they considered a default glass, I couldn't see the default myself. So that was probably their huge competency that made they, they could see it. But he said, well, I couldn't see it myself. And then he went back. And he went back to the CEO. He said, I have an idea. And they provided a series of six glasses. And you need to speak a little bit French to understand because there's a play on word on this. And the series were called, was called, if I remember well, Imparfait, uh, which means both uh, imperfect but one perfect. So what he did was this. There was one glass that was totally perfect and five others who were not perfect. They had a default. That, of course, you can imagine if he couldn't see it, even the client wouldn't see it. But he sold the idea that the idea of perfection is in imperfection. And if you don't have imperfection, you can't see the perfection. And you see, this is exactly the story. This is exactly the nice thing. And by the way, Baccarat was probably had in the, in, in the sauvetage by this because they could, they, they, this was a, a total success. And you know, this Baccarat glass story shows exactly the same. Sometimes you need to accept a little bit of imperfection in the system. Uh, I like very much uh, a golf coach book, uh, <coughs> which is, uh, uh, which is uh, a Bob Rotella book, actually. And he explained that golf is not a game of perfect. That's exactly the same, you know, depends on what you, you, but if you want to reach a certain perfection, you actually need to understand what imperfection is, accept it, digest it, swallow it, and then uh, improve yourself on this. That's basically maybe the, the leadership adventure. Laurent, thank you so much. Uh, thank you so much for sharing your perspective. That was um, always, always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much, Laurent. Have a wonderful day. Thank you, Thomas. Thank you so much. Bye-bye, all of you. We hope you enjoyed this discussion. If you did, be sure to subscribe, like, share, or comment. Until next time, let's make work matter.